This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will be a review of questions related to the last few topics we covered on the podcast. These topics include bone signaling and rank ligand, pediatric abuse, metastatic disease, and prosthetic joint infections. These questions were taken from the 2013 OrthoBullets virtual curriculum webinars. The first topic of bone signaling and rank ligand from the basic science section will be reviewed by Dr. Patrick O'Donnell. So we're, we're going to start off with a bang and hit bone signaling and rank ligand, one of my favorite topics. So question number 36. Rank ligand is an important regulator of bone resorption. What cell expresses rank ligand? So you've got to know the rank, rank ligand OPG pathway. If you know this, rank ligand is expressed on osteoblasts. The rank receptor is what's located on an osteoclast precursor cell. Osteoprotegrin, this OPG, secreted by the osteoblast and is a decoy receptor for rank. The key here is that cancer cells aren't directly responsible for tumor-induced osteolysis. What they do is they activate this pathway causing osteoclasts to resorb the bone. Osteoblasts down here secreting rank ligand to act on the osteoclast precursor causing osteoclastogenesis and bone resorption. OPG also secreted by the osteoblast blocks this rank ligand's effect to block osteoclast precursor activation. So if we go back to the question, rank ligand is an important regulator of bone resorption. What cell expresses rank ligand? Well, it's number two, the osteoblast. It looks like 90% of you guys got that right, so that's awesome. One thing that's coming down the pipeline in, um, in tumor surgery is this a new medical therapy called denosumab. You might see this in the next couple of years, so we'll just spend a second on it. Again, similar cartoon, osteoblasts secrete these little nuggets, the rank ligand, which activate the rank receptor on osteoclast, causing bone resorption. Denosumab is a monoclonal antibody directed against rank ligand. So here, you see the little Y? That's the universal symbol for a, uh, an antibody. And what it does, what the denosumab does is it sequesters the rank ligand blocking its interaction at the rank receptor and blocking osteoclastogenesis. Next question, 46. Calcitonin plays a role in bone metabolism by which of the following mechanisms? To get this question right, you need to know a little bit about the cell signaling of calcitonin on the osteoclasts. So calcitonin actually inhibits osteoclastic bone resorption by directly binding a, uh, the cell surface receptor, the calcitonin receptor seen here. What it does is it decreases the osteoclast number in activity. So after it binds to the calcitonin receptor, it decreases the resorption through an intracellular signaling cascade. You don't need to worry about PKA, PKC. Those aren't going to show up. Those are very common uh, intracellular signaling molecules, but not important for our testing purposes. In addition to downregulating the resorption, what calcitonin also does is it, decre it decreases the uh, gene expression of the calcitonin receptor, seen here in italics. So it's a negative feedback loop. Calcitonin binds to the receptor, decreases resorption, and also decreases its gene product. Going back to the question, calcitonin plays a role in bone metabolism by which of the following mechanisms? Well, the correct answer is one. Looks like 72% of you guys got that right. That's awesome. We look at the incorrect answers. Number two, calcitonin does not function through the, the rank ligand pathway. It binds via the specific calcitonin receptor. Number three, calcitonin actually increases OPG uh, production in the osteoblast, again inhibiting osteoclastogenesis. Number four, calcitonin actually opposes the effects of parathyroid hormone. And number five, calcitonin decreases osteoclast activity. 
So remember your O's. Calcitonin with an O. Opposes with an O. Bone with an O. Resorption with an O. Calcitonin opposes bone resorption. The next topic will be pediatric abuse from the pediatric section and will be reviewed by Dr. Vish Thalwalker. <clears throat> so the first uh, topic is pediatric uh, abuse and child abuse. It is one of the uh, areas that are covered quite heavily within the examination and certainly on the in-training examination and uh, uh, also on the boards. So let's start with the first question. What are the two most common lesions seen in abused children? To get this question right, you'll need to know some things about child abuse. Uh, one of the things that you'll need to know are those signs to look for, uh, including uh, multiple fractures in various stages of healing, uh, corner fractures, which are fractures that result from a twisting mechanism to a limb, really a fracture at the uh, metaphyseal physeal junction. Multiple bruises and skin lesions are very common in children uh, who suffer from child abuse. In fact, they are uh, among the most common things. Uh, a history of an unwitnessed injury, uh, as well as uh, long bone fractures and non-walkers are children under 18 months of age. The most important thing from an orthopedic standpoint is to be able to recognize those injury patterns and uh, also to order the skeletal survey and get a social worker or a social service unit uh, involved. Uh, in most uh, medical centers, this involves the pediatric surgery unit. So uh, on this x-ray, you can see that uh, uh, this is a distal humeral physeal separation. The way we can tell that is the uh, disconnect between the distal humeral metaphysis and the proximal radius and ulna. The proximal radius and ulna appear to be in an appropriate relationship, and the proximal radius is still pointing to the capitellum, which you can see, just barely see behind the distal humeral metaphysis. And the radius and ulna are together like they should be, but uh, they are dissociated from the distal uh, humeral physis, or distal humeral metaphysis. So, <clears throat> in abused children, the most common lesions seen are skin lesions and fractures, and that's response number two, and most of you got that right. So good job. The next question, a two-year-old male is brought to the emergency room complaining of pain in the left elbow. Radiographs are shown in figures A and B. This injury pattern should raise concern for which of the following. And so similar to the last question, you can see on this x-ray, the proximal radius and the proximal ulna are both in appropriate alignment. And the proximal radius is pointing toward the capitellum as it should in all views of the elbow. Uh, and you can see on the lateral x-ray as well, uh, that the proximal radius is pointing toward uh, the capitellum and uh, is in an appropriate relationship with the proximal ulna, uh, but both of them appear to be dislocated from the distal humeral metaphysis, and so this is a distal humeral uh, physeal separation. <clears throat> Once again, uh, it's important to recognize the injuries that are associated with child abuse, uh, including the ones that we talked about. Uh, you also have to be aware of uh, humeral physeal separation as well as posterior rib fractures. Uh, uh, in addition to the ones that we talked about, about the last topic. So once again, a two-year-old is brought to the emergency room with pain in the elbow. Radiographs show a distal humeral physeal separation, and this should raise concerns for child abuse, which is number five. The next topic will be metastatic disease from the pathology section, and will be reviewed by Dr. Ginger Holt. So this first question uh, asks, what is the most appropriate treatment for a 65-year-old female with a 100-pack year tobacco history who presents with a new painful lytic lesion in her femoral diaphysis. So they're already giving you a patient who's over 45. She's got a very large uh, smoking history. She has a, a painful lesion. It's lytic and it's in the femoral diaphysis. So those three things are very important. It's painful, lytic, and in the femoral diaphysis. So if you remember patients who are over 40, 
have metastatic cancer until proven otherwise when they have a destructive lytic lesion. And the lesion you see here on the screen is a perfect example of one of those lytic destructive lesions in the diaphysis of the bone. Uh, the carcinoma is it most commonly spread to bone. We like to remember them as P.T. Barnum likes kids, prostate, thyroid, breast, lung, kidney. And by remembering this lady has a 100-pack year smoking history, she likely has lung cancer. The uh, metastatic cancer likes to go to the axial skeleton, so the vertebral bodies, pelvis and ribs, central in the body. And then the proximal femur is very, very common for these lesions to be seen. This is where we uh, see a lot of uh, fractures occur. The preferred response here was five. The uh, difference in responses one through four are that they all uh, require you to perform some sort of treatment without making a diagnosis. And you guys did great. 94% uh, of people got this question correct. Um, don't assume anything in a patient. You need to make a diagnosis. Your board exam is designed to show that you're a safe surgeon and making a diagnosis first is the most important thing you can do. If you suspect a metastatic lesion and the option of biopsy is given, you want to choose biopsy. I actually went back to the last um, uh, self-assessment exams and training exams, went through them, and when the choice of biopsy was given, uh, it was the answer when a metastatic lesion was involved. Our next question uh, is a 62-year-old male, so it gets a patient over 40, 50 pack year history of tobacco, productive cough and increasing leg pain for six months. So again, over 40, productive cough in a patient who has a very significant tobacco history, should already be potentially thinking lung cancer, proximal tibia radiographs are shown, concerning for an impending path fracture, CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, staging and blood work are negative. What is the next most appropriate step in the management of this patient? So you're suspicious. Um, you have a patient who has a, a smoking history, what is the next best uh, option? So evaluating a patient who presents over 40 with a lytic bone lesion, imaging labs and biopsy are the uh, steps. Plain x-ray first, we start from sim the simplest uh, possibility and go to the most complex. A CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is going to find the primary tumor in over 85% of cases. And a whole body bone scan is something that stages for you. So a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis is to find a primary tumor if you're looking for it in a metastatic lesion. But a whole body bone scan is to stage a patient to see if they have more lesions. The labs are less helpful. The ones that are helpful are getting a CBC, sed rate, C-reactive protein to look for infection, which is a common confuser, PSA, and then uh, SPEP and UPEP, serum and urine electro, electro, um, immunoelectrophoresis, are important because that is a determinant for myeloma. Again, don't treat a lesion if you don't have a diagnosis. And our preferred response here for this patient uh, who we suspect is over 40, smoking history, destructive lesion in the bone, you can see in the diaphysis of the bone, is for a, a biopsy yet again. All the other options are some sort of treatment and surgery without a diagnosis. 92% of you got this correct, so again, good job. I think you guys are getting this concept. The next question is 65-year-old woman, elbow pain. Her radiographs are shown here. She has a history of non-metastatic breast cancer 10 years ago, which was treated successfully, so they're telling you that she has been treated. She doesn't have any evidence of disease. Her mammogram, bone scan, CT scan, uh, all show that this is an isolated lesion. What is the next most appropriate action and treatment? 
Here's the lesion. It is in the uh, metaphyseal portion of the bone. You can see it's lytic. It's thinning the cortex, a very lytic destructive lesion. And again, you, you, I think you guys are getting the point. You're doing well on the test with this. Don't treat a lesion if you don't have a tissue diagnosis. In this patient, uh, the options are to give her a total elbow arthroplasty, curettin bone graft, which would be for a benign lesion, percutaneous cement injection, or radiofrequency ablation. If a patient has a, a time between their treatment for cancer, they don't have metastatic disease, and they have a two-year interval in which they present with new disease, a biopsy is necessary. 98% of you got this correct, so again, good job. Uh, this question was a little bit confusing for some folks. 53-year-old um, female, one year of increasing knee pain. She's otherwise healthy. And here are your images. The uh, bone scan shows a single isolated lesion in the proximal tibia. Here's the lesion in the tibia. It's metaphyseal and epiphyseal. It's destructive. You can barely see any cortex uh, remaining around this lesion. And on the uh, CT scan and the MRI scan, uh, you can see there's a lot of edema surrounding the lesion suggesting a pathologic fracture. The histology here is the important determinant for you. And I showed you um, the, the, what are the distractors in this question. Here's a chondrosarcoma showing you the binucleate cells, um, which are very characteristic for chondrosarcoma in contrast to myeloma, showing you a hematopoietic tumor that has multiple small uh, blue cells. Here's a giant cell tumor, which is the most likely distractor in this case. It is a, an epiphyseal lesion that we see in adults. Here's, here are the, uh, the giant cells and then the uh, cells in the stroma that have a very similar appearance. And then here's a chordoma. And if you look at this pathology, you can see the difference between cartilage, hematopoietic tumors, a giant cell tumor, and a very rare chordoma only in the spinal column. And I showed you here a, a circle is a physoliferous cell, which is very characteristic of a chordoma. So in your preferred responses, I just showed you the difference in a chondrosarcoma, giant cell tumor, myeloma, and chordoma. Here you see the renal cell carcinoma, which is the preferred answer. And you can see glands are being made. You have nests and glands of cells that actually look like a glandular tumor. And I hope by looking at the pathology that we saw before, you see the difference in the, these lesions and why the histology makes the difference for you. Next question is a 63-year-old female metastatic breast cancer to the lumbar spine. So they're telling you she's got metastatic cancer and it's in the lumbar spine. Her neurologic exam shows significant weakness in leg function, and she's having difficulty ambulating. Imaging shows a significant neural element compression and complete erosion of the L1 vertebrae. She has no other sites of metastatic disease and is otherwise healthy. What treatment option do you recommend to best maintain her function? So we know the spinal column is a very common place for metastatic disease to occur. It's the most common, and the treatment for this is to decompress, stabilize, and treat. A patient who has a progressive neurologic deficit with metastatic disease has to have the neurologic deficit treated. If the patient only had pain and did not have an evolving neurologic lesion, you could consider a radiation. But we know that epidural uh, compression confined to a single area in radiosensitive tumors uh, have uh, the best treatment when they're decompressed, stabilized with fixation, and receive treatment. And in this question, uh, there, there was some difficulty between uh, response four and five. So this patient, is you're told, she, yeah, although she's 63, she only has a single metastatic lesion. Palliative therapy would either be just radiation therapy uh, and allowing her neurologic um, issue to progress. The um, 
neurologic exam shows significant weakness. So if we look at um, complete neural element de decompression versus uh, instrumentation, instrumentation with chemotherapy or radiotherapy, the distractors are along uh, neural element decompression. So we know this patient, in order to treat her focally, she's going to need post-op radiation therapy, and that's what would lead you to this question. There's a, a question that comes up, and a lot of people were stuck between chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Radiotherapy is immediate, and in a patient who has systemic disease, you want to use radiation to treat the lesion. If it's a long bone fracture, if it's a fracture that you've treated, radiation acts within days, uh, hours to days. Chemotherapy takes days to weeks. So a patient like this with an evolving neurologic deficit needs to be decompressed, their neurologic function needs to be restored, and radiation acts immediately. And that's the difference between four and five. And the final topic in this review question series will be prosthetic joint infections from the recon category and will be reviewed by Dr. James Brown. Moving on to the next topic, uh, which is that of infection. A 65-year-old male who had, total, who had a total knee arthroplasty eight years ago comes into the office with worsening knee pain. The orthopedic surgeon is concerned about infection and aspirates the knee. Which of the following are the lowest laboratory values from a synovial aspirate suggestive of infection? Uh, now, the key here uh, is to uh, keep these numbers in your head. Uh, the lowest values suggestive of infection include a white blood cell count of somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 cells and a differential with polys of greater than 60 to 70%. Now, I don't think you have to memorize this exact number. You need to know a ballpark figure. You need to have some number in your head that's somewhere around one to 2,000 cells and 60 to 70% uh, polys. Uh, these numbers are much higher if you're talking about an aspiration early in the post-op period, uh, and that was recently published in CORE. So if we get back to the question, a 65-year-old male uh, is uh, seen in clinic. There's clinical concern for infection. The knee is aspirated. Which are the lowest laboratory values from a synovial aspirate suggestive of infection? Now, uh, how I would approach these questions is to say, let's eliminate the outliers right out of the gate. So you know that if you look at question one, 500 cells and 25% uh, polys, that's, that's much lower. Uh, that's pretty safe and reassuring aspiration. We can cross out one. Similarly, we can come down to four and five. And if we look at these numbers, uh, whatever number you keep in your head, 5,000 certainly is, is uh, much too high. Uh, this is clearly infected. So if we come back and we look at two and three, you've narrowed it now down to uh, answer two or three. Um, and what I would do is say, well, these are both sort of in the ballpark. If we come over here and look at the differential, we know 25% polys. Well, that's well below the cutoff for infection. Uh, so the answer's got to be three. And that's how I'd approach these questions. If you have a ballpark idea in mind, you can usually eliminate the outliers and get this right. And it uh, looks like the, the vast majority of you did that. Question 25, a 58-year-old man has significant pain and stiffness after undergoing right total knee arthroplasty six months ago. The current radiograph and bone scan are shown in figures A and B. Labs show an ESR of 45 and a CRP of 13.5. Both of those are elevated. So that's concerning for infection. Knee aspiration reveals a white blood cell count of 850 cells with 50% polys. That's below our, our uh, cutoff, so that's reassuring. And then no growth on culture, also reassuring. So what's the next most appropriate step in management? Well, I would submit, you know, if you look at the x-rays, they don't look too bad. Nothing's obviously loose. The bone scan lights up. You don't yet have a diagnosis. And I would, uh, you can go ahead and cross out all the answers that involve surgery right out of the gates before you have a diagnosis. When you're dealing with infection uh, and you have inconclusive data, so you've got elevated inflammatory markers uh, with an aspiration that is relatively reassuring, a hot bone scan, again, we always need to uh, 
uh, assume that joints are infected until proven otherwise. You haven't proven otherwise yet, so I repeat, uh, repeat the aspiration. And that's the answer they're looking for. I'd say inconclusive means any patient with inflammatory or elevated inflammatory markers, history concerning for infection. They've had drainage earlier in the post-op period after their index arthroplasty. They may have an unusual clinical presentation, early loosening, uh, or additional imaging like a, a, a hot bone scan without x-rays that look, uh, look like there are loose implants. So the preferred uh, response here is repeat aspiration and culture. Uh, answer number five. Uh, most of you got that correct. Uh, a number of you chose uh, one. Uh, Two-stage component removal, antibiotic space replacement, and subsequent revision, which would be the answer if you can prove the knee's infected. I would say for the boards, I'd be hesitant to operate on someone without uh, a clear diagnosis. Uh, similarly, answer two, observation with repeat ESR and CRP with, uh, in one week. I think it's unlikely that you're going to get different uh, data with an ESR and CRP in one week, and you're going to be left in the same situation. So uh, the answer here is repeat the aspiration, answer number four. That's all for this first question review session. Again, the audio was taken from the 2013 OrthoBullets virtual curriculum. For access to the most recent review webinars and all previous webinars, be sure to sign up for one of the many study plans available on orthobullets.com. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education.